0: The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome to Night Fright. And if you've been listening to part one of this show, welcome back to Night Fright. Peter Lavenda is here tonight. Just let me read something from his book called Sinister... There we go. Sinister Forces. And um, it's pretty darn chilling, folks. Uh, he's got a trilogy out, and this is from book three, which is called The Manson Secret. And it says, Terrorism... By contrast, is the new witchcraft. Terrorists are aligned against all states and thus are rebels everywhere and despised everywhere. They attack culture and not military targets to maximize the fear factor. Terrorist cells are the modern equivalent, are you ready for this? Of the Witches' Coven. And the Patriot Act is the equivalent of the Spanish inquisition peter Lavenda, folks and the books are called sinister forces there is three of them number one number three number two welcome back peter thanks for joining us once again and sticking around for the second hour where we left off bobby kennedy had just been assassinated by sirhan sirhan um you attended the funeral in the church and you just right. gotten out of your limousine and you were ushered right away in because the Secret Service, of course, as you pulled up in the limousine, thought you were
1: part of the entourage. Can you yep. pick it up for us right there? Sure. It was. Uh, it's one of those things that have stayed with me, of course, my whole life. Why wouldn't yeah. it? It was uh, probably... A, I mean, I was graduating high school that month, you know. Um, so it kind of sticks with you. you. You're ushered into the church immediately. And I'm thinking we're going to sit somewhere in the back. Um, you know, the place is crowded. I mean, every political leader in the country is there uh the security was the tightest new york city had ever known this is the second kennedy to be assassinated so you can't imagine the the tension that existed there and yet they screwed only three months folks after
0: martin luther king by the way exactly april 4th 1968 bobby june 6th 1968
1: so what happens is you are ushered into the church by the secret service i mean they were they had fallen down on the job that day there's no way we should have gotten into the church we were two high school kids in in homemade (laughs) you know priest costumes i mean come on um but i guess we looked legitimate enough and um we got in and instead of putting us you know in the back somewhere um they assumed that we were dignitaries and they sat us inside the sanctuary really so we are sitting there with all of the cardinal's and archbishops from different religious denominations in New York, including the head of the Greek Orthodox Church, Archbishop Yakovos, uh, at that time, who is sitting across from me and glaring, <laughs> because I'm dressed like he is, but he has no clue who I am. Um, and you have to remember, too, at this point, I, or have to know at this point, I didn't have a beard in those days. Uh, I could have been a nun, as far as anybody <laughs> would know. I mean, I'm wearing a hat with a veil. You know, so anything could be possible, and so my friend is on the other side. They they put us on either side. You know, one on one side of this of the altar, one on the other side. So we're inside the communion rail. We're right where all the action is, and uh, behind me is standing um, Andy Williams, the singer. The singer,
0: very good friend with Bobby.
1: Yep, and Andy is a little nervous about all of this, and because of where I'm sitting, because I'm at the edge of uh, of the pew the last one in um, he'll come up to me and tap me on the shoulder and say am I on yet um, and I have to tell him no I mean I had the, 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 the schedule in front of me and he was going to sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic it was a very famous moment in the funeral and he was just waiting for you know he didn't know how this mass thing you know worked I guess so we're going through the entire mass the entire ceremony um, and finally the ceremony is over um, and we're told to rise and we're going to go out of the church right down the center aisle. Uh, If you've been to St. Patrick's Cathedral, it's a very impressive place. They have huge bronze doors at the very end, and it faces across to Rockefeller Center, there's Atlas holding the world. All of this is there. Uh, You have um, the Hallelujah Chorus, Leonard Bernstein's going to conduct it, he's in the choir loft. I mean, this is just everybody that you can imagine. And it turns out, because my friend and I were the last ones in, we're the first ones out. So we're going to lead the procession out of the cathedral. Two high school kids who had not yet graduated <laughs> are going to lead the procession out, and we're complete frauds. We could have been carrying a bomb in those hats. you know. I mean, I, I don't understand how that happened. I really, really don't. And anyway, we get up, and we're leading the procession out of the cathedral. The door is open. Andy Williams is singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And then after that, uh, Leonard Bernstein goes in and does his... Is Hallelujah chorus uh, from Handel, Handel's Messiah. So, for me, it was my graduation. The door is open. There's Atlas holding the world. I'm I'm fine with this, but I want to get out of there really quickly. You know, I take a turn. My friend takes a turn. We meet at a prearranged place underneath the church. We're trying to get out, and of course, we run into everybody else who's trying to leave secretly, including Rose Kennedy. A quick aside:
0: Were you emotional when Ted Kennedy gave that wonderful speech about his brother?
1: Oh, it was absolutely very, very moving. He quoted George Bernard Shaw, of course, uh, one of Bobby Kennedy's favorite quotations. You want to tell Uh, people where that's from? Because I was unaware of that until I read your book. (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, the quotation is, let me remember, see how how it is. Some people uh, dream things that, uh, some people see things the way they are. Uh, I dream things that never, uh, some people see things the, the way they are and say, why? I dream things that never were, and say, "Why not?" Why not? Yeah, it's a beautiful quotation. It's from George Bernard Shaw, but it's the words of the devil. Isn't that wild? Which is a lot of people don't realize that that's the devil in uh, in the George Bernard Shaw play. So it's it was very very strange and uh, moving on the one hand and nerve wracking on the other. At any moment, I think I'm going to be arrested. Yeah, you know, it was not my intention to go into the sanctuary. I just thought I'd gate crash kind of in hanging out towards the back, uh, but we went right up front, and that was very, very strange. I will tell you, I've contacted the Robert F. Kennedy Foundation, I've contacted a lot of people, uh, photographers and everybody else, television stations, nobody has any of the film footage of that funeral. There are tiny snippets, especially of uh, Ted Kennedy right. with his eulogy, Yeah, and if you look at that, if you look at the, the long shot, you'll see me uh, face if you face the camera you 'll see me uh, on the left hand side of your screen. this strange, very young guy with glasses is sitting there you know there 's a brief moment when you see when you see me sitting there, but there 's no actual footage of the whole funeral and i 've searched like mad i 've done internet searches i 've done everything, and the Bobby Kennedy people told me if you find it, let us know there 's not even any still photographs really so i don 't know what happened to all of that. I think you know it 's possible. At some point, the Secret Service said, "Who are these two schmoes walking down the aisle?" You know, uh, I mean, this is a an, embarrass- an embarrassment, of course. But people did see us on on local New York television because they told us they saw us. So I know I know we were filmed, and I know obviously we were filmed. There were clay lights everywhere, you know, so we were being photographed and filmed. But it's really hard to find that footage anyway. So we leave the church, and we run into. A couple of very strange-looking bishops who hand us some cards from another church. Uh, they invite us to go down and to visit them in the Bronx. And this is the American Orthodox Catholic Church. Uh, and my friend and I do this. Why not? And so we go and visit the church and we get involved with them. Vladimir Profeta is the leader. He's a former Ukrainian priest, Ukrainian Orthodox priest who founded his own denomination. He's the guy working with J. Edgar Hoover He told me, quite bluntly, that he had CIA and FBI on his board of directors. He was very open about that. He said that had Dewey won the election against Truman, he would have been the White House chaplain. Oh, man. He was a strong, very strong anti-communist, virulent anti-communist. And in those days, being an anti-communist gave you a lot of uh, credibility in a lot of places and gave you a lot of context. He would go on... um,
0: oh it's okay peter keep going okay,
1: yeah i lost you there for a second
0: yeah i don't know what happened he would there.
1: go on television with another um bishop from the ukraine and they would talk about um the Katyn forest massacre they would talk about various uh, atrocities that the communists had perpetrated and they would talk that up a great deal um so he was very he was on you know, national television doing this for a while in the 1950s so he was a very strong anti-communist and uh, very well known for that and uh for that reason, he was so well-connected in New Jersey politics, as a matter of fact, that he thought he was going to deliver the state of New Jersey for for doing. So this is uh, the kind of you know, situation that was going on at the time. And when I met Profeta, he was still very active in, uh, in politics. He was still very active um, with intelligence operations. There were people going in and out of that church from foreign countries. Um, we had Italians come in. And the people from the Italian consulate would show up as as we made them a bishop. There was nobody else in the place. We had no parishioners. There was no there was nobody actually coming into the church on Sundays. Nothing. It was an empty building. You know, it was a church, but it was relatively empty. So um, at one point, we had a guy from Nigeria come into the come into the show into mm-hmm. the show to the church. Well, it was a show. Yeah. Um, he was um, the Holy Prophet Aluya. The Holy Prophet Aluya was um, a guy from Nigeria, but he was on the Nigerian side of the Biafran Civil War. Nobody remembers this very much, but there was a place in Nigeria called Biafra. Uh, it was very heavily Catholic. Aluya came from the anti-Catholic contingent, and he came over to be consecrated a bishop and go back with the sort of papal blessing, if you will, and whatever other resources America was going to throw behind him. Um, I didn't know if this guy was even a Christian. You know, holy prophet, he showed up. I picked him up at the airport, at Kennedy Airport, and this guy was a complete dashiki African garb and the whole thing. Very strange guy. But we made him a bishop, turned him around, and sent him back. So a lot of strange things were going on in those days. Um, A lot of strange people came in and out. I saw at one point FBI showing up with their wingtips and their you know, blue suits and white shirts. I mean, they were hard hard to miss. Uh, They would go in behind closed doors and have discussions, and all kinds of things went on with that particular church. Um, But at that time, 1968, the the garrison investigation is still ongoing. Yep. You know, and they're talking to David Ferry, they're talking to Jack Martin, and, you know, unbeknownst to me, he was obviously talking to Archbishop Profeta, my boss in the operation. So I didn't spend very long with them, about a year before i thought this just was just too weird i'm out of here and uh I, I left but this is the point that i think i have to make about all this is that i was there at the church i understood there was this underground thing that was taking place and then later when the um the Warren commission stuff came out uh, later when the house uh, subcommittee and assassinations material started coming out, I started looking through it and began to realize slowly that I actually had been on the periphery of this all this time, and that I could have helped Jim Garrison understand what was taking place. I don't think he would have for a moment believed that these so-called bishops were part of a covert operation, intelligence Mm -hmm. operation taking place in the United States. So, how does Sir Sir Han work into all of this now? well yeah this is this is the problem yeah sir Han Sirhan as, as I mentioned was very involved in occultism mm-hmm. he was involved in all sorts of strange things he was involved in hypnosis um, we had William Bryan, who knew Sir Han evidently uh, William Bryan had been involved in consulting on the uh, the Boston Strangler case among many others. he was a mm-hmm. well-known hypnotist he was associated somehow with Sir Han Sirhan um, there was this belief that Sirhan had been hypnotized. Yes, because after the assassination, he had no memory of what he did. Mm-hmm. After he was convicted of the assassination, he didn't. He never said he didn't do it. He just said, "I have no memory of having done it." He remembers going into the into the ballroom, uh, maybe having a, a drink from a punch bowl or something, um, talked to a few people, was chatting up a girl, and the next thing he knew, he had Rosie Greer on top of him, taking the gun away. So Sirhan Sirhan didn't know what happened between chatting up this girl, which might have been the girl in the polka dot dress, Mm. and then the assassination. He has no memory of what happened in in the middle. He has no memory of shooting at Bobby Kennedy. But he never said he didn't do it. He said, I must have done it. They said I did it. I just don't have a memory of it. Mm -hmm. His notebooks are very interesting. Um, When they finally released those notebooks, and you were able to to look at them, uh, he had a lot of very strange notations, and there are a lot of very occult references references to theosophy and to Rosicrucianism and to to strange ways of getting psychic power and psychic abilities and things like that. So there was a lot in the notebooks that uh, made me think he was up to something.
0: I was going to ask you, you, did he ever recall writing those passages? um, What was it? Murder Bobby must die, Bobby must die, over and over and over.
1: RFK must die, RFK RFK must die. die. Yeah. Yeah. Over and over and over again? No, and then pay to the order of, pay to the order of, over and over again as well. Um, those two sentences were were always there. Um, he had no memory of this. He had no memory of wanting to kill Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. So he was just there. He was a, you know, he was a, a convenient kind of patsy for this, or he was a Manchurian candidate. He was somebody who had been programmed to kill the president in one of those hypnosis sessions. Maybe it was William Bryant. Maybe it was somebody else who was consulting for the government. But somebody was involved in this kind of attempt to create a programmed assassin. And to me, you know, I'm looking at the Sirhan material even now, years and decades after the fact, and talking to people who have been part of Bobby Kennedy's detail and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. They have the feeling that that Sirhan is telling the truth. He has no memory of what happened. Maybe he was there uh, to kill the president. He doesn't know. Um, But he didn't have any animosity against Bobby, no more than anybody else. He was a Palestinian. Of course, he, was, uh, he had sort of very strong feelings about Israel, but he and his family had moved to California. They were living a, a relatively good life in California. Um, so nobody understands what motivated him to do this. He looked like he was picked for that reason. He was a Palestinian. Um, his involvement in occultism was, you know, evidence of a deranged mind, perhaps, and a little hypnosis, and he was pushed in that direction. It's quite possible.
0: And to this day, he's still incarcerated, folks, although he's been up for parole, I think, 10 or 12 times now. And all, and every time, he's been refused a parole at this point. So I don't know if you'll ever see the light of day.
1: Well, but, it, it, just one one aspect then, after the Sirhan Sirhan killing, or the, the Bobby Kennedy assassination, the process church that we mentioned dropped yeah. out of sight. So they just dropped out of sight out of California. They suddenly decided it was too hot to stay in California. Um, there were intimations that Process members might have been involved. Maybe they knew Sirhan. Maybe they were involved with Sirhan at some point. Sirhan, with his not with his uh, interest in occultism, Theosophy, Rosicrucianism, he might have run across the Process. The Process may have been, you know, uh, involved with him. They were already involved with Manson, you know, um, and that would come to play the following year. But in 1968, um, it was Sirhan. Sirhan. It was the Process Church. It was all this other stuff, the process decided to leave town, and they did. They disappeared from the scene in 1968 after the Kennedy assassination.
0: Unbelievable.
1: Uh, there's been a lot of uh, scraps of eyewitness testimony talking about process people being around the Ambassador Hotel at the time, so we don't know. Maybe the girl in the polka dot dress was process, and she changed into her black robes for the occasion. I mean, who knows? You know. But there was something going on with process um, that they felt that they were suddenly insecure and vulnerable, so they left. But by that time, the die had been cast and Charles Manson was on his way to perpetrating his, his horrors the following year, in August of 1969. But not before he would go back to Ashland, Kentucky hmm. and kill his uncle. Now, this is uh, not necessarily proven yet at this point. I talked or I communicated with the uh, chief of police in Ashland, Kentucky, when I was writing Sinister Forces. The chief of police had been the investigating officer in the strange murder of uh, a man called darwin scott who was manson's uncle in ashland kentucky this guy worked for a trucking company he didn't show up um for work one day his co-worker went to his apartment to find him and found that he'd been stabbed to death in his apartment the crime has never been solved it's still open to this day according at least until uh, Sinister Forces was published, because I was in contact with the chief of police. And he had been the investigating officer, and he told me bluntly, the case is still open, which is why he couldn't give me any more information about it, and I was desperate to find out more details. But in a small town like Ashland, you know, once again, it's a small town, and in 1968 to 69, I forget the exact date, but Darwin Scott was murdered. Uh, And who did they see in the vicinity? But a man they called the Preacher, who was traveling with an entourage of young women. I mean, they describe basically Manson. Yeah. And there's no proof that Manson was in California when his uncle was killed. And Vincent obviously Bugliossi, he's
0: he's never admitted to it either. And you were no, going to say no.
1: Vincent Bugliosi.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah Bugliosi actually referred to this killing in his book uh, on the case. Um, so, I mean, he, he kind of thinks there's a connection. Hmm. Then there was another killing before the Tate-LaBianca killings. This one even more bizarre. And this took place on New Year's Eve on Mulholland Drive. And it was the murder of a young woman called Marina Habe. Uh, Marina Habe was the daughter of a, an author, uh, Hans Habe, who was uh, very well-known during World War II period and in the immediate post-war. He was a journalist who uh, worked in Europe at the time. He was the man who uncovered the fact that uh, Hitler's family name was Schickelgruber. Um, he was the person who you know, publicized that a great deal, and Hitler wanted him dead. Uh, for that reason, Haba escaped to uh, the West, and he became an intelligence agent. He worked for the OSS during World War II. Uh, he worked in propaganda. He wrote books about uh, the, the the evils of Nazism and uh, the partisan uh, movements uh, to, to fight against uh, Hitler in France and Germany. So he was a person who was very well involved in all this. And um, his daughter was murdered. On Mulholland Drive on New Year's Eve, she had been at a party, at which it's said that Manson also attended. Mm. She left, and then she was murdered, stabbed to death again, uh, very much like the Tate-LaBianca killings, very much like the the, the, the Scott murder in Ashland, Kentucky, and uh, you know left I mean left for dead. She died there. And her father was an intelligence agent, and she was the daughter. Sharon Tate followed the same pattern. Sharon Tate's father was Colonel Paul Tate. Colonel Tate was an intelligence officer, and he worked in Vietnam, among other places during that time. So she was the daughter of an intelligence officer who also was killed. Um, I don't know if there's a pattern there, but when things like that start to pile up, you start to wonder what all this means.
0: Well, it's starting to look like Charles Manson and his family were outsourced, if you will, to take care of perhaps some problems that the CIA or intelligence in general was having with some of these people.
1: I believe they were outsourced. I don't think that the Tate-LaBianca killings were um, sort of accidental. I -hmm. mean, we know that Manson knew the address on Cielo Drive where Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski lived. Um, And uh, he had been there once before when Terry Melcher lived there. Terry Melcher is related to Doris Day. It's a whole Hollywood thing. Uh, But Terry Melcher was there and Manson had visited Melcher, trying to get Melcher interested in his music. You know, Manson, during this entire time, was writing music. He gets friendly with the Beach Boys. I mean, they actually hang out together, the Beach Boys and Manson. And the Beach Boys record one of Manson's songs. And it's called Bluebird Over the Mountain. Oh, man. Ring a bell? Yeah, you mean that guy's getting royalty money? Well, I don't know. (sighs) It could be. But Manson wrote the song. There's no doubt about it. They changed the words a little bit because Manson's words were a little too drastic. Um, they, he, Manson's lyric, one of his lyrics was, never learn not to die, uh-huh. which the Beach Boys changed to never learn not to love, uh, which probably you know aggravated Manson no end. But otherwise, the song was pretty much kept the way it was, and it's Bluebird Over the Mountain. And the reason why that has resonance for me I really feel sorry for your listeners. They must be really going nuts at this point. But the reason this has resonance for me is the term Bluebird. Because Operation Bluebird was the CIA's very first mind control operation. It was the forerunner of MK Ultra. It was born in 1950 out of the Korean War when everybody was afraid that the Koreans were, they had some weird mystical powers and they were brainwashing American troops. So they developed something called Operation Bluebird. And this was to counteract the effects of the brainwashing to find out if they could do it. So Bluebird, to me, always has that resonance. When I see Bluebird, I, I start to wonder what that's all about. And then, and then it evolved
0: into MK Ultra.
1: Well, it goes right into MK Ultra, And the reason why, I think there's a connection. And, you know, you'll think I'm crazy by this point, I'm sure. But uh, there was a play um, about the Bluebird. Um, which was written by a Belgian mystic and Nobel Prize winner, by the way, called Maurice Maeterlinck, and he wrote this famous play about the bluebird. And it's it's a strange little play. It's two little kids. I think it's on Christmas or something. They're looking for the bluebird of happiness, which sounds bucolic and sounds you know pretty saccharine if you think about it. Until they start going on their adventures looking for the bluebird of happiness. And they went into all kinds of strange people and strange places and strange things. Um, and then they come back and they realize the Bluebird was al- always at home. They had never had to leave. It was always there. Hmm. Uh, spoiler alert. But this play was produced a long time ago. Uh, Mater Link was a friend of Stanislavsky, the famous uh, you know a theoretician of the stage and theater. It later became a movie starring Jane Fonda and a lot of other people um, and was filmed in Russia. Hmm one of the first films hollywood films made in moscow during a kind of brief lull in the tensions between the two countries um there's just so much strangeness about that about that uh, story of bluebird that i thought it was deliberately chosen by dulles to be the project name and
0: dulles folks the head of the oss and uh, then he became later cia sorry yeah
1: yeah. Sorry about that. I'm dropping names, forgetting that. I should do some background, but That's yes, Alan Dulles of CIA, yes. So it, it seems to me that this was a deliberate uh, selection, and why would they be thinking about Maurice Maiterling? Um, a very, you know, I mean, these days no one's really has heard of him. He's kind of popular in theosophical circles and things like that. But So the Bluebird story, uh, I started to deconstruct the Bluebird, Bluebird play, and found that there was resonance to the mind control operation. Really? Yeah, there, there's certain scenes in the play, there are certain references. There's even uh, this, this um, reference to assassination, you know. Uh, you all look like a pack of assassins at one point, uh, is one of the lines in the play. All kinds of strange things you wouldn't expect in this cheery little tale of two kids going out to find happiness. But the bluebird is always out of reach. You know, the bluebird is there, and the bluebird is taking them through different changes, mental changes, psychological changes, until finally they return home at the very end. So there's something bizarre about that. So I decided to research Maurice Materlink a little further, and I talk about that in Sinister Forces. He wrote another play that no one's ever seen, probably, called The Cloud That Lifted. And in this play, which was, uh, I believe it was performed in Moscow, um we have an assassination that takes place. A political leader is assassinated by a man named Alec. The shots are fired from a grassy knoll in front of this victim. We're not sure how many shots were fired. There's some debate over that. And then one of his friends, one of the friends of the of Alec of the assassin, says, We don't know who he was working for, but we think he was working for Mother Russia. <laughs> This is all in a play that was published before Jack Kennedy was even born.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And Alec, right away I thought of Alec Heidel. Alec Heidel, which was his pseudonym, Lee Harvey Oswald. Yep. Yep. When he was first arrested. (sighs) Holy moly, Peter.
0: Peter Lavenda, folks, uh, you've got to get these books. You got to get these books folks. Sinister uh, Sinister Forces, there's 3 of them. I'm going to grab the other one right now. www.nightfrightshow.com. just click on tonight's guest book covers order the books. You're going to be amazed at how all this connects. Okay, some more connections. Uh, well, one are, more thing just okay.
1: Maybe, go ahead. We, we drop it just I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay. I found that play in an ancient book bound with other plays in the library at the town in Rhode Island where I had the Men in Black experience. And it's only at this moment that I just put those two together. Oh, not that they belong together necessarily. But suddenly I realized, yeah, that's where I found that play.
0: Well, do you want to hear a Montreal coincidence? I don't know if it is or not. In the 60s, of course, MK Ultra folks was mind control operated by the CIA. They sourced that out to a hospital called the Allen Memorial in Montreal. There was a cafe called the Bluebird Cafe in Montreal. And somebody had decided wow. Wow. to block all the ex- exits and set it on fire. And every one of those kids—I think there was two or three hundred kids in that cafe, was kind of a, a dance club as well—died. So when you said Bluebird, wow. I thought of that right away. And this was wow. the 60s, and this is when MK Ultra was just roaring right through all the uh, all the news files and everything because sure, it was sure. just coming out. LSD and everything. Another weird coincidence. Um, also from Montreal because Lee Harvey Oswald was seen there in August 1963 handing out leaflets to um, anti-Castro leaflets the same way he was seen in August 1963 handing out anti-Castro leaflets in New Orleans. So all these coincidences, there's something more going on. Okay. I've got to get to this because people, I promised people I would talk about this. Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson, folks, wrote a song that was immortalized by Eric Clapton and cream called Crossroads Blues. Robert Johnson, folks, was a young black man born in 1911 and murdered in 1938 by a jealous husband. Robert wrote 29 tunes. November 23rd, 1936. November 22nd, 1963. Guess who died? So if you reverse the three and the six... Scares the hell out of me, this stuff. Thanks, Peter. Now I won't sleep tonight. <laughs> Johnson was in a hotel room. And uh, this is Robert Johnson, by the way, not uh, the, the vice president. <laughs> 1936. Saw Johnson in a hotel room, turned into a makeshift recording studio. Johnson's legacy, folks, is found in all blues music and rock and roll today. cross blues carries the legend that Robert Johnson himself made a deal with the devil. At the crossroads of life, and he opted for a short-lived fame and glory, in exchange for the payment of his soul and short life. Can we talk about the devil's music, and all the way to the assassination of John Lennon? Yeah,
1: that's a that's a story, you know. Can we I get mean, it in in 20 minutes? Uh, we can try. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, Johnson. Johnson's uh, influence on musicians: uh, Eric Clapton, uh, Mick Jagger. Oh, I mean, yeah. e- everybody. Uh, sympathy for the devil. It. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sympathy for the devil. Yeah. I mean, this was uh, Mick Jagger said that you know, having hearing Johnson for the first time was was earth shattering. It, it just yeah. it just changed his worldview. And same thing with Clapton. They hear these. They heard the, the Johnson recordings. It was like listening to somebody playing from the other side of the veil you know someone from beyond the grave in a sense i mean or from someplace very dark so this kind of idea that maybe you sell your soul to the devil and you get this extraordinary gift in return which is short-lived is something that's kind of constant you know um, i mean manson to go back to him you know here's somebody else who's you know obsessed with satanic things you know, obsessed with cultism, obsessed with this sort of stuff. You know, and he's writing music furiously. I mean, he's written a lot of music, actually. Some of it you can download. I mean, it's there, and it's um, it's all dark. You know, it's all about death, and it's all about overcoming death, or or you know, not being afraid to die. It's all about violence, and it's about a lot of things like that. There's always a dark twist to everything that Manson does. Um, Manson learned to play the guitar in prison. In fact, uh, it was a famous guitar player who taught him how to play the guitar. So, you have this continuum going through modern music from the 1930s when Johnson was, was doing Delta blues, all the way up to Elvis. You know, with, uh, he was a major influence of people like Elvis Presley, but also, especially on the Beatles yeah. and then the Rolling Stones. Yeah. There's this idea of some dark connections there and if you remember uh, the Beatles came out with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Sgt. Pepper album Um, and among the people we like photographs on that album is is one of Aleister Crowley. Uh, Aleister Crowley was considered by some, especially by the British tabloid press, to be the wickedest man in the world. Uh, He was a cultist, he was involved in you know very strange rituals involving sex and drugs, not so much rock and roll and he was very involved in contacting other forces, he wanted to make contact with extraterrestrial forces uh, that had not been on the Earth in, in thousands of years. He was uh, very involved in, you know, uh, practices that would open the mind and, and liberate uh, consciousness. But he used what we would consider perhaps dark me- methods to do that, uh, even up to and including animal sacrifice, uh, to get that particular job done. So. For a British gentleman, that was considered pretty weird. Yeah, it was uh, said he practiced black
0: magic and had all kinds of things, um, sure. spells and things of that nature, folks.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was considered that way. He has many followers today, and they would yeah. probably object to the black magic uh, uh, cognomen, but anyway, they... And just to bring, um, just to let you know, Ozzy Osbourne did a song called Mr. Crowley in sure. honor of Mr. Crowley. Yep. He has a tremendous influence on, sure on, on, on music and on culture, uh, starting, I guess, maybe with the Beatles, maybe earlier, but certainly with the Beatles when he showed up on that album. Um, and you remember, what did they say 25 years ago today, you know, Sergeant Pepper came out to play. Uh, if you look at the date the album was released and you subtract 25 years to the day, it was the date of the Roswell crash, uh, which was the famous UFO crash in Roswell in June 1947. So I don't know if that was deliberate or not, but it's pretty spooky. When You, you know, Peter, I'm going to be playing those, all those albums
0: backwards again. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> this was a thing in the 60s, folks. Sure. There was this big rumor that Paul had died. Paul McCartney had died. <laughs> and that if you played the album backwards, I forget what album it was. It could have been the white. I can't remember. Uh, it said, Paul has died. And uh, that's that was the message. That I buried heard. Paul. I buried Paul. There you go. Sorry to yeah. interrupt you, Peter.
1: No, no, it's okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you it, it's just mind-boggling, the, the number of coincidences that begin to pile up. Jim Garrison once wrote, uh, when he sees all these coincidences, Jim Garrison, the, yeah. the district attorney in the, in the only trial ever conducted on the Kennedy assassination in, yeah. in New Orleans, uh, Jim Garrison had said that uh, when he sees the coincidences start to pile up, that's when he sees the outline of an intelligence operation. Well, we see a lot of coincidences around the assassinations. Just they multiply like crazy which is why um, assassination researchers go nuts because they don't necessarily want to believe there was a conspiracy and they're trying to be rational about it. At least some of the ones that I've known Mm -hmm. are very rational trying to take apart what happened in the assassination. But then they come up against this this wall, which is built of these coincidences. At, At a certain point, you throw up your hands and you say, well, if it wasn't a conspiracy, then it was an act of God because there were so many forces at work Around all these individuals to make it happen. Now, whether it was a conspiracy or not is almost moot. You know, there were other forces, what I call sinister forces, at work. And
0: um, let's in, talk in about this... those sinister forces. But first, I want to give yep. you one more coincidence, folks. We had talked uh, a lot about the Bobby Kennedy assassination and, of course, JFK only five years before that. There was a fellow by the name of Jim Braden, folks, who was arrested in Dealey Plaza, November 22nd, 1963. He was a known mafioso. Uh, He was released and let go. Um, He was found in a building, lurking in a building, uh, which a lot of people believe the shots originated from, called the Daltex building. Now, what's interesting about this is he was found lurking in that building... And his excuse for being in that building right at the moment of the assassination was he had heard that the president had just been killed, and he was looking for a telephone to call his mom to make sure she was okay and just to let her know that everything was okay. Anyways, he had been released. Fast forward. I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version, folks, as quick as I can because we're running out of time. Five years later, guess who's arrested a few blocks from Bobby Kennedy's assassination at the Ambassador Hotel? Our very own Mr. Jim Braden. There you go. So, yeah, there's another weird coincidence. Okay, let's talk about. Let me sinister- throw a few
1: more at you. Okay, go ahead. Since you like coincidences, I got a few. <laughs> they scare that bejesus out of me. Well, Sergeant Pepper, Roswell. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Roswell happened in June of 47. And also in June of 47, we had the famous Maury Island case uh, and the Kenneth Arnold case. Kenneth Arnold really yeah. started the whole flying saucer uh, thing, uh, a fad, if you want. But there was a there were a couple of people involved in another case called Maury Island, which is considered to be a, just a hoax, nothing more than a hoax. And one of those individuals is a guy called Fred Crisman. Fred Crisman had been in the war in World War II. Yeah. We don't really quite know under what circumstances he claimed he was a pilot in Burma, which I suppose is possible. Regardless of that, Fred Crisman was the guy involved in this particular hoax, uh, if it was a hoax. Uh, a flying saucer had fallen apart into pieces over uh, this guy in a boat with his dog, uh, killed the dog, I think, and uh, hurt his son, and there's slag, and there's pieces of the UFO, and he comes back on shore, and he calls his partner, Fred Crisman, and says, this is what happened, and Crisman then contacts a number of people. The Army Air Force, it wasn't yet the U.S. Air Force quite yet, the Army Air Force sends people out, they look at the slag, they interview everybody, they take the boxes of the slag back with them on their plane, their plane crashes and the two uh, Army Air Force officers die. Okay, now we fast forward to Jim Garrison investigating the Kennedy assassination in New Orleans, and who's one of the suspects that he subpoenas to appear in New Orleans but Fred Crisman. We don't know why. We can't figure that out, that connection, but suddenly it was believed that Fred Crisman belonged to the Minutemen, which was a kind of a militia, a military, quasi-paramilitary group. Uh, sort of a right-wing, yeah, Yeah. neo-Nazi kind of operation Mm -hmm. Um, that may have been involved in the Kennedy assassination. We know there were right-wing elements that wanted Kennedy dead. Uh, There was a plot in Florida, Mm -hmm. for instance. uh, right. So that's, okay, strange enough, but there's another problem with this. The FBI guy, who was stationed in the Pacific Northwest, who was reporting directly to J. Edgar Hoover on UFO sightings, was a guy called Guy Bannister. He was the FBI guy. He was in charge of those investigations for the FBI. That's really Guy weird. Bannister then winds up in New Orleans, two, running his own... Excuse me? I think it's in book two. I remember yes, reading that it's, and it's making there. a circle. Yeah. yeah, I hope it's in it's one of the books. It so is. he then winds up back in New Orleans. He opens up his quote-unquote detective agency, which is where, of course, David Ferry, Jack Martin, Lee Harvey Oswald, Tommy Baumler of the Process Church, all of these guys hang out in that particular office. Right. So you have Guy Bannister and and Fred Crisman, they knew each other. Garrison didn't know this. Garrison didn't know these guys had been had at least crossed paths at least once. And yet here's Crisman with his very strange, murky Sort of intelligence background stuff. And then there's, you know, Guy Bannister, who we know was an FBI agent. We know that he was in charge of investigating UFO activity. We have his telexes to Hoover. We have his telegrams. We have his reports with his initials, WGB. We have his name, Bannister. And these files that were sent to Hoover about UFOs always came under the rubric X. They were X files, literally, X files. That's how it appears on the memorandum. So there's Guy Bannister and Fred Crisman involved in the very first X-Files, also involved in some way in the Kennedy assassination, which is pretty much the X-Files you know, arc.
0: This it? is blowing my mind, folks. Peter Lavenda tonight. Peter, is there something, are we part of this big script that's already been written and we're just
1: pawns playing parts? Is that all this is? It, in a way, I think it is. In a way, at least 90% of our consciousness is, is on hold, essentially, until we start looking at this material and trying to make sense of it. And once we start trying to make sense of it, our lives kind of change. You know, things happen to us, so we start noticing uh, coincidences more. Oh, yeah. Sometimes things happen in good ways. Uh, when I get involved in studying this material, sometimes people show up that I need to talk to, but I didn't know were there. Books fall into my hands I didn't know existed. Uh, I wrote a lot of Sinister Forces while I lived in Kuala Lumpur, in Malaysia, you know, in Southeast Asia, very far away from here. And I would find books on Manson and on the Salem witchcraft trials in secondhand bookstores on side streets in towns in Malaysia. How is that even possible? But it was things that I needed when I was doing that research. You know, sometimes the coincidences are good. They're positive ones. They, They actually help you out. In other times they're just strange and you don't know what to make of them. Mm. But the more you start to to read about this material, the more you start to concentrate on it, the more you open yourself up to another kind of way of looking at the world. And that can be dangerous if you're not, you know, a pretty commonsensical kind of guy or girl. Uh, but if you're if you're you know, if you have a tendency towards paranoia and and that sort of thing, it's probably not a good idea. To focus too much on this kind of material, you know, it, it uh, are you you'll start to notice things. Are you a
0: believer in karma?
1: I think it's a scientific reality, isn't it? It's sort of hmm. law of thermodynamics, or you know, or what goes up must come down, or something like that. I mean, there is a, a an economy of energy in the universe, and I think you push in one direction, you're going to get pushed in another. So maybe that maybe it is karma. Is that script that I referred to? Because I
0: wanted to give a definition of something that's laid out. Is that organic? Is that fluid? Are we making it up from a, a human consciousness, if you will, as we're going along?
1: We can. Um, we, the thing is, we, we normally don't. We normally don't care. We're normally asleep in this world, you know, and we're in a state of, of slumber. We're sort of sleepwalking through life. I think, for the most part. It really takes a lot of strength to stop and smell the roses and and try to figure out what's what's really going on. Trying to make contact with um, with a deeper kind of reality, I think it's important for us uh, to do that. I mean, it's um, it's a script that we can participate in. Mm. We can write. I mean look at the link material here's a guy who prefigured the Kennedy assassination and he was a mystic I mean he was he was somebody who believed in spiritualism and astrology and everything else but he won the Nobel Prize for Literature at that time Jeez. you know so he wasn't a total psycho I mean this was somebody who had both feet on the ground and yet believed in this and made contact and saw an assassination happen before the victim was even born We have the same thing with the Texas Tower sniper you know, uh, in, in the University of Austin, Texas some years and years ago, decades ago, there was a guy who went up on top of a tower and started shooting students with a high-powered rifle. Well, somebody had written a novel about that years before, and was so specific they even got the name of the investigating officer correct. I mean, details like that were very, very clear in this, in this book. He foretold that particular event before anything like that was even going to happen. So these things happen, and you can say, well, he had a psychic vision or something, but those terms really don't explain anything, do they? You know. And then you talk to a scientist, and they say, well, there's no such thing. Well, maybe there's such thing as, as jumping across you know, uh, an arc of time somehow. Uh, the space-time continuum may be more malleable than we think. Maybe it's possible in our consciousness to see things uh, before they've happened. If that's true, can we affect them before they're happened, you know? Can we stop them from happening or make them happen? You know, what, what, what degree of willpower do we have in all of this? People like Aleister Crowley would say, you do have the willpower to do that. You know, he was all about the will. You know, uh, do without will should be the whole of the law was his famous axiom. That if, but you have to find out what your will is, you know, and it's not, it's not do what you want. So you have to kind of figure out what is your true will. Who are you? And figure that out first and then work from there to, to find out the rest. In your opinion,
0: is there a devil that manifests evil on the earth? And I guess the other part of that, the mirror part of that, is there a God that manifests good on
1: the earth? Man, you're getting to some territory here, Brent. Uh, Let me think how to answer that question. I've been doing a lot of research. I'm I'm involved in a project now that I can't really go into yet in too much detail, Um, but it's been consuming me for the last 18 months. And it's a project that touches on a lot of this, but from a completely different angle. And it would appear that we understand certain things in our experience to be good or evil. We understand certain things to be the God God or the devil. Um, And there may be some we may be getting some mixed messages where all of this is concerned. We know there are people who are true believers in God who are perfectly willing to massacre, you know, millions of people without a second thought. And it's not uh, academically correct, let's say, to criticize their religion. I'm not talking about any religion specifically, because they've all been guilty. So when it comes to God and the devil, we, we have to find out who that is ourselves. It's, it's a little tricky. And I think that, um, let's say, as for a sake of argument, could it be the same entity? It can be. Hmm. I mean, according to initiation, it is. Uh, according to Masonic initiation, it is. According to uh, Tantric initiation, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the devils that you see are, are the ones you see first. I mean, and there are imperfections in your vision, imperfections in yourself. You're not able to see God because of problems that you have, so you see devils instead. Let uh, me give you this example
0: uh, because I, I want to talk about free will, as you just mentioned. And the human aspects of being involved in this script. You know, the power of fire is very powerful. Um, You can use it one of two ways. You can use it to warm yourself, to light yourself, to light the way, or at the other extreme, it'll cause severe damage. You know, I'm just thinking of the poor people in Fort McMurray right now as as the trees burn. is it something like that that the human person has to be involved in order to make a decision? In other words, the energy is the same thing. It's how we use it that defines it to be good or evil.
1: It's how we use it, and it's how other how others use it. Okay. Where we're concerned as well, I think the the, the evangelicals call this the power of discernment. Hmm. The idea that you have to be able to tell. You can't just take it on, you know, uh, on faith. Let's say that an angel shows up and says, "I'm an angel." Mm-hmm. You need the power of discernment to determine if that really is an angel or if it's the devil in disguise. Yeah. So this is something that has to that it, it comes with with training, with a lot of work, with a lot of uh, meditation, let's say, or prayer, or ritual, or whatever uh, is is in your particular environment, your context. But it, it's a requirement. Otherwise, what we do is we leave all these decisions up to somebody else. And all too often, what happens is these other people determine our future for us determine our lives for us even determine our relationship to the divine for us um so that's a problem right but who has the time to sit there you know and go through you know 20 30 years of you know monastic training to figure out how to do this yeah so you have to use a lot of common sense and you have to you know make your way gingerly uh, If think something doesn't smell right you stay away from it you know if something terrifies you Look at it more closely. See if it's really evil. See if it's really something uh, that you need to stay away from, or is it part of yourself that needs to be balanced out? Are you mm. are you scaring yourself basically? Um, so there's a there's a lot to be done where that is concerned, and it's possible that our science these days is getting to a point where there's going to be an ability to get in deeper into this into this problem, which is one of the things I'm I'm studying at the moment. Is where does consciousness come from? You know, how do we understand these things? How much of it is part of our evolutionary process? How much of it comes from outside? Um, you know, what's the relationship between us and and things that we don't see, but we yeah. know it. Are- yeah, we know they're there. You know, we're sitting at a bit of a crossroads right
0: now because as we speak, we started at the beginning of Part 1, folks, talking about the primary that's taking place tonight and uh, in California. And I guess my question to you is, is the future written? In other words, is it is it a given that one of those two people, well, I, I suppose it is, will be the next president of the United States, and the consequences of that is already are already preordained, or is it really a crossroads where we have to be, again coming back to the powers there, but we have to make that decision about our future, if you will?
1: Yeah, I, hope I that think was clear no i understand where you're going with this um it's one of those questions that i always i always think about anyway um i think that the the events that take place in our lives are probably written i think how we react to them what we make of them is not okay i think we have a we have a certain amount of free will i mean a natural disaster is going to happen regardless um you know there's going to be a tornado or a hurricane or something and I'm down here in Florida, and the people on the West Coast are getting hit by a a tropical storm right now, I think. So not much we can do about that. But the way we handle it, the way we address it, the way we – the attitude we take going into it is up to us. And we can feel dejected and and desperate and fall into depression and give up or not. And I think that's up to us. I, I don't know what's more important for us, the things that happen to us or the way we react to them. And I think that's what we have to figure out. That's always easy to say, you know. But if you're a, a small child in Darfur, this is not very good advice to give, right? Yeah. Um, so we're living in a, in a kind of an environment where we have the luxury to think about these things. And that always concerns me, you know, where there's so many people around the world who don't have that luxury, that have to react to their environment uh, for survival. Um, Every day. So I, so there's that issue. And that's that's been part of the problem I've had my entire life, in understanding the balance between a purely spiritual path, which is sort of isolating from society, or a path of engagement with society. You know, how do you make those two things happen at the same time? And that's always, you know, in the 60s we debated this, you know. We could do the New Age Peace Man and just sort of turn on, tune on, and drop out, and, you know, go into, you know, another world and become Buddhist monks uh, for a while. Or we can become, you know, activists and write on and power to the people and get out there and do something constructive. Um, and each side disliked the other and distrusted the other. And there had to be a way to do both. And doing both sounds like a big deal, like a lot of work. But I think, uh, I think it's worth a try. I think so.
0: Oh, perfect timing. Talk about a coincidence. <laughs> Peter Lavenda, folks, thank you so much, Peter, for being a super trooper, two hours. My pleasure. We'll see you next time. I'm Bren Holland from Night Fright. See you all next time. Thank you so much, Peter. By the Oval Office to Davy Plaza. First-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. NightFrightShow.com.